We're going to read the first 22 verses. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Would you guys pray with me? God, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for your finished work on the cross and for these great examples of faith, God. And uh, we just pray that your spirit would speak through Jackie, Lord, and speak to us as as these examples have been given, Lord, that you want to give us the same faith, God, that we would believe you and trust you completely and wholly with our lives, God. uh, We just pray that you would change our hearts, Lord, to, to see you and to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.
I know. You guys are going to have it memorized by the time I finish doing it, I can promise you. So, so far, what, how, how long have we been here? Who's keeping score? Five weeks? <laughs> so, so, I'm not as bad as some. I do know one guy who spent a year in, in Hebrews 11. So, we won't be that long. <clears throat> but we are there for a while. Because this is kind of an important thing we want to lay hold of, right? So, when we come to Hebrews 11, a lot of people call Hebrews 11 the hall of faith. But what we see is the faith... That actually changes a life. Uh, in the church today, there's a lot of examples, or there can be a lot of examples of people who profess faith, but that faith never changes them. Right? You guys, have you guys ever seen that? And so the writer of Hebrews lays out for us this section, this chapter, and he says, man, here is what faith looks like that changes lives. And last time, if you remember, we talked about the reality that that faith is not predicated on some outward expression. If you remember, we talked about it. If you don't, I don't have time to go back into it, but, but grab the tape. But it's an inward expression. It's an inward expression of the heart, blossoming out, coming out of the life of a person who, who has faith in Christ. And one of the ways that we recognize that, remember, and we've talked about it for several weeks now, Hebrews 10.34. Hebrews 10.34 gives us a precursor of what it looks like. And Hebrews 10.34 says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, a more abiding one. That better possession, that more abiding one, is that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. That is our treasure. And if that being true, that faith, that faith changed those guys so that when they were stripped of their possessions they accepted it joyfully which is kind of mind-boggling to us today they accepted that joyfully okay well so i I get to suffer for jesus and as we look in hebrews 11 we get to draw examples of that as we work our way through so the hall of faith gives us examples of men and women who laid hold of a future reward so that it radically transformed their lives. They laid hold of a future reward. And it's no different for you and I, by the way. Our reward is future. Right? I mean, Jesus came and paved the way for us. But there is a future reward, a future reality that we're looking toward. And so we come to this section of Scripture and it should challenge us in the same way man this is the this is the faith that radically transforms life and this particular section from verse 13 to 22 that's what we're going to look at today from this particular section as we work our way through is a future reward of joy is for the refugee the exile that's who it's for and it's a little bit mind-blowing if you take the time to think about what the scriptures are laying out for us here. It says in verse 13, these all died in faith. I told you last time, that's like saying they finished the race, right? They finished well. Not only did they begin in faith, but they died in faith. They finished. It was a life of faith. They had a life of faith. Look at it. They died in faith, not having 
receive the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, (coughs) and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So here's what these all, who are these? These all, this whole chapter are the these. All these who are implied, all these who are listed. They all died in faith. They started in faith, they died in faith, they finished the race that they had laid out before them. But one of the things that finishing meant is they didn't get the promise here. They didn't receive the promise. They they all had that in common. They were looking for a future where, where the fulfillment wasn't here. Now last time, you remember we talked about, we get a taste. Absolutely, the life of a believer. There's a taste of that. The Bible says... It calls it a down payment or a guarantee of a future reward, a future reality. He says that the Holy Spirit in our life is a small taste of what is going to be experienced on a grand scale when we are with Him. When we're with Him, when we stand before Jesus Christ, our our Lord and Savior. So, this is what we want to know. All these guys that we're looking at, they all, they all died in faith, and all of them were looking to a promise that they didn't get fulfilled here. And then it's described, they use this little section, and hopefully I can paint a good enough picture so you guys can understand. But it says, but having seen and greeted them from afar off. And that, you know, the best way I think to to explain that is, uh, you know, I kind of call back on, on my time in the Marine Corps. When I was in the Marine Corps, Basically, the deal was six months on, six months off. For six months you got to be home. For six months you were somewhere else. Not usually very close to home. And back in, I call that the, the old core. Now, guys who were older than me, they were in an older core. But we didn't have cell phones or Skype or none of that. So when you were gone, you were gone. We, we did this thing, maybe you guys are familiar with, where you take paper and pencil, <clears throat> and we actually wrote on it, and, uh, and would mail it to each other. Crazy idea. But, but when I think about that, there was always this incredible day when the float gets home. And all you're, you're coming off of the ship, so we're pulling into harbor, and we're coming off a ship you've been doing nothing but staring at a bunch of marines and sailors for six months and so you when you get to the top of the ship over not not super close but over you can see all the families and you just couldn't wait to get there so you'd be standing there at the edge of the boat and you'd start waving now you know you're not even really sure which, for me, which of the blonde heads waving back is Kathy? I don't know. And which one? Where's, where's Joe? Or I'm uh, JC. Joe wasn't born. And uh, so wh- where's JC? And, and just as a baby. And we're, we're looking. And so we see it afar off. I just want you to get the picture. We see it afar off. And we greet it best we can from where we're at. But what do we long for? I don't want to be on this dumb boat no more. Where do I want to be? I want to be with her. I wasn't made for this boat. I was made to be with her. And that's what what the writer of Hebrews is getting at with the promises of God. He's saying, I wasn't made for this place. 
I was made to be with Him. I was made to spend eternity with Him, be by His side. And so He looked and He greets it, greeting it from afar, longing for that day, for that moment when when we would walk down the ramp from the boat and you had to go through a series of dumb things they make you do in the Navy to get on and off a boat, if you ever done it. And then after all that stuff, you, you start picking up speed. You get a little faster and a little faster. Why? Because you, you long to be with your family. You long to be with the ones that you love. And that's what this picture is. So all of these guys are saying, this place is not my home. So I need to stop looking for <clears throat> satisfaction here. It doesn't mean we don't have good things here. You have good things here. Is it okay to, to enjoy them? Absolutely it's okay to enjoy them. He said he gave us all of this <coughs> to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing and enjoying the good things of this world unless the good things of this world have become your focus and you can't see the better things that the future yet holds. Now you're like that guy who went out on float and just wants to stay on a boat. And just so you know, there's nobody like that. But sometimes we get that mindset, don't we, about the world, about the things of the world, about what the world has to offer. And listen to how they said this. They said, having acknowledged, they acknowledged this statement, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Acknowledged. We're refugees. This is not our home. Even if we're born here. This is not my home. We are exiles. This is not it. This is not it. Now you think, oh, Jackie, I don't know. I don't know if that's real. Well, I don't know. Let's take a little journey and see if this is supposed to be the attitude of the believer. Let's look in, in Genesis 23, 4. You have Abraham, his wife, whom he spent his entire life loving, has died. And he's looking for a place to lay her. In Genesis 23, 4, he says this, I am a sojourner. And a foreigner among you, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. By the way, that's the cave of Machpelah. Still in Israel today. I have been to Israel eight times. I keep trying to get there. One day I will get there. But <clears throat> the cave of Machpelah, not a place like it. It's an actual place. Where? Whose bones? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, not other people. That's their burial place. They're there. Their bones. Still in that place. Well, what did he tell the people in the promised land where he's at, living in a tent, because he said, I'm looking for a city that's not here. I'm looking for a city from God. Right? A future place. A future reality. So what did he tell them? Here I am in the promised land. He said, I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger in this land. It goes on in Genesis 47, 9. Jacob's talking to Pharaoh. He meets Pharaoh, you remember, when he discovers that his son is, is alive, Joseph is alive, he goes back. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. So what's he saying? This life that is in the hall of faith declared to be 
a man who is looking forward to a future promise and that marked his life of faith. What's he say? My sojourning was 130 years. Every day of my life, I lived in a place that is not my home. I'm a sojourner, exile, refugee. This is not my home. Is that it? Well, how about Psalm 39, 12? David. You guys all know David, right? King David? (laughs) King David, who, by the way, had a palace and a lot of good stuff, right? A lot of good stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Don't freak out about having stuff. The point is that your stuff don't have you. That our stuff is a tool. That our things are blessings from God for us to enjoy. That's okay. But look at David's attitude in Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you. A guest. What's the next phrase? Like all my fathers. He's saying, everybody who went before me, this is how they live their life too. Now he's king in the land. He's got everything he could ever want. But what does he say? I'm a sojourner. This place is not my home. I'm looking forward to a reality with God. I have an assurance of things hoped for. Do you hear it? I have an assurance of things hoped for. And I have a conviction. Things that I can't see yet. He's laying out this concept for us so that we can hold on and understand that this is our attitude. We're sojourners. We're sojourners. Well, what about for you and I? Is it different for us? How about Philippians chapter 3, verse 20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's our home? What were we created for? Where's that place, like we alluded to last time, where everybody knows my name? That's in heaven. It's with Jesus. That's that place. You ever live your life like you always felt just a little out of place everywhere I go? Well, there's one place you're not going to be out of place. That's with Jesus Christ. The city that he makes. The city with foundations. A city that will be eternal. What about 1 Peter 2.11? Listen to what it says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He says, hey, Peter is saying, I, I just want you guys to know this is how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live as a sojourner, as a refugee, that, that we're not looking for this place to satisfy our desires we're not looking for this place to satisfy that hunger that's inside of us that we're recognizing that the life of faith is a life of a sojourner everything's temporary we live in tents if you will now we might have pretty nice tents compared to abraham And they're a little more permanent. But at any point, if God calls, we go. 
we, we are ready to be available for Him. And in the end, my home, and I love my home, <clears throat> but I'm not going to hold on to my home and sacrifice heaven for my house. I don't want to give up the future. I don't want to lay aside the future. I don't want to draw back as some might. See, the promises of God and His presence and the presence of Jesus Christ, that's our promise for the future. That's our promise that we hold on to. Not even the coming of Messiah brought this promise home for us. Like I said earlier, it made a way for us. What the coming of Jesus has done is made the promises visible. We're on the boat and we can see Jesus in the distance. And so we, we see Him and we greet Him from afar, longing for that time when we would be with Him. But just like the fathers before us, and these in Hebrews 11, which we'll see in Hebrews 12, are such a great cloud of witnesses, we recognize this place, this is not my home. And they refused to go back. Look what it says in verse 14. For people who seek thus, make it clear, they're looking for a homeland. We're looking for the place where we belong. There's a place we were created for. We were created to be in the presence of God. We were created so that we could stand there in that place, in that heavenly home that God has prepared for us. And so we have this desire within us. Maybe we can't even quite put our finger on what it is. But there's that nagging thing inside of us that just never satisfied here. And we know it's true. Ten minutes after you get something new and shiny, you want something else new and shiny. Right? Or after that you, you worked and you worked and you got that new place or new house. Or, but it's somewhere down the line it's thinking, oh man, look, there's another one over there. It's a better or another. Why? Because we're not satisfied with it. Because we weren't created to be satisfied with it. We weren't created to find our satiation here in the things of this world. We were created to find satisfaction with Him. We were created to be satisfied in Christ. To be satisfied with what He has for us. Verse 15 says, If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If the land they were thinking of that was their home... Let's take Abraham, for example. We just talked about him last week. God said to Abraham when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham left. And we thought about what awkward conversation that is. Right? Abraham, where are you going? I don't know. Why are you leaving? God told me to go. Well, where are you going? I don't know. How will you know when you get there? God will tell me. I don't know. But he left. Now, if the place he was looking for was Ur of the Chaldees, if the place he was looking for was the place he left from, he would have went back, right? He would have went back. But the Bible says we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we're of those who go forward, who keep our eyes moving forward to what God has for us. Because now that place that we've left, that place that held those... those. Uh, chains on us for so long we realized that's not what i was made for i wasn't made for that place here's how paul says it in uh, philippians chapter 3 <clears throat> he says brothers i do not consider that i have made it my own but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Now, what's the goal? The goal is the prize of the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I press on for him, that Jesus Christ has become the treasure. Now, a lot of things can, can start to cloud that, that view for us. A lot of times in our life that, that can be blocked by something else, the desire of a relationship, or the desire for children, or the desire for whatever, anything else. And not that those things are bad things, but they can become that treasure that we long for so much we start to lose sight. And we're no longer moving forward, but we're, like the scripture says, if that's where your treasure is, that's where you're going to want to settle. That's where we, we, we want to settle. We don't want to go back. I want to seek a home, not settle here. I want to seek a home, the place I belong, the place where Jackie fits, where all the weirdness that is me can be at home and openly expressed without fear of everybody else going, what did he just say? Did he just do that? Did you see him? Now, if I feel that way, how many of you guys feel that way? Yeah. Anybody ever feel like, you know, in fact, it was funny. I guess Kathy went skiing on Saturday. So shocking. She went, I think it's the last ski trip, but she went skiing on Saturday, which is good. I actually like it that she found something she really enjoys. I've had that our whole marriage. She just found it, and she's just having a ball. So praise God. But she went away, and so I took a, I don't know what you want to call it. I took a day where Jackie didn't have to be anything or act any way or do anything. I just did nothing. And I, and I didn't have to worry about whether or not somebody was satisfied with me doing nothing because there was nobody there but me and Joe. And Joe don't care if dad's doing nothing. So <clears throat> I'm totally, completely, utterly unplugged from it all. And it was nice. But we know the reality is you can't do that all the time, can you? But you see, when we're with Jesus, we won't have to put on all those airs that we do around each other. We won't, we won't have to pretend or try to be something we're not. We just can be who we are. Because you, you are then able to be who God made you to be. And we have the one thing that we've been lacking our life down here, which is what? The, the actual physical presence of Jesus Christ. Right there. Touch, see. We'll have the greatest treasure with us. Here's what the scripture tells about seeking a home. In Matthew 6.33, what does it say? Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God. And all these other things that we worry about, they'll be added unto you. So what is it that, that Jesus is telling the people? He's saying, get this vision. Look for me. Look for that, pre- that, that treasure, which is Christ. And stop worrying about trying to add all those other things. Oh, if I, if I do that, if I focus on Jesus only, I'll never get married. If I focus on Jesus only, I'll, I'll never get to experience the things that, that I think I'm going to miss out on. And what God says is the opposite. He says, seek me first. Make me your treasure and all these other things. They'll be added unto you. Do you have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen do you believe what God says 
Or are we so worried or so sure that we're not going to, or that God's not going to come through, that we find ourselves in limbo, in between, which is like the one place you don't want to be, right? That's the place where you're miserable. I used to play tennis. Does that seem weird that I played tennis? I don't, I don't usually, this is confession week. I don't usually, I don't usually make that confession, but I used to play tennis in high school. And I played, I played two sports in high school, tennis and football, which is two things that seems really weird to, that go together. But anyways, I played tennis. And there was a place in tennis called No Man's Land. No Man's Land is that area within the court where the ball is bouncing. And if you're standing there, you're not really in a good place where you can hit the ball in the air, and you're not really in a good place where you can hit the ball off the bounce. It's all in your feet. So they would call that no man's land. You don't want to get caught in no man's land. You either want to go charge the net or stay back. You with me? You either want to go or stay back. Now look, we don't want to be those who draw back, the scripture says, under destruction. We want to be those who move forward. Like Paul said, I'm pressing on. I'm moving forward. I want to get stuck in no man's land. But sometimes we get stuck in no man's land. Why? Because we don't have the assurance of things hoped for. The Bible says that's what faith that transforms. Holds the promises of God like a sure thing. It holds on to those and goes ahead. And recognizes that this place is not my home. Abraham came to understand, Ur is not his home. And hopefully we can understand as sojourners, as exiles, this place is not my home. That's why it doesn't satisfy. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. You guys know it? The C.S. Lewis quote goes like this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. If we have a desire that can't, there's, no, there's, a, there's a whatever you want to call it. Some people call it a God-shaped hole. I just think there's a thing in me that is never quite satisfied and the only place i've ever found satisfaction for that part of me is with jesus christ with him when he became my treasure i felt that place satisfied but the satisfaction is just a taste right it's it's not the total satisfaction that it will be as we move forward to be with him They also recognize God's promises better. Let's look at the next verse, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. They're looking for something better. There's something better than what we have. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, I love this phrase, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for them a city. Does that remind you of anything? God has prepared a place for you? In John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Jesus, headed into the cross, said this to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. Man, he has a place. 
He has a place, a place for us that He has prepared for us, a place where we fit. So faith takes a look at the world and it considers all the things that the world offers. And then faith considers the promises of God and what they offer. And then faith desires and seeks another country. It desires what God has for them. It holds the promise. And then it lives its life moving toward the promise. Going to Jesus. Walking toward Him. And so they, we see this in the life of faith. And that life of faith transforms you. It transforms you because now I'm not living for this. I'm not living for that. I'm, I'm living for Christ. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that my day is now all preaching. I go stand on the corner uh, w- with you guys all, all day of the week or whatever down at Planned Parenthood. No, that's not. What it means is now my eyes are focused on Christ and I'm doing what He has me do. And you know what? What He has you do may be the exact same thing you're doing right now. But the difference is the desire of your heart in doing it. Now, the desire of your heart maybe is for provision. Maybe the desire of your heart is some kind of satisfaction and success in your work. Maybe the desire of your heart could be any number of good things. But when the desire of your heart changes and it becomes a longing for Jesus Christ, you may still do the same things. But now, because your desires change, your attitudes have changed. Now, because your attitudes have changed, your opportunities have changed. And all of a sudden, you start looking around and recognizing, man, I'm, I'm seeing more opportunities. I'm seeing more ways that I can honor God in what I do. And I didn't change anything except... What my heart was focused on. My heart was looking for satisfaction here. Now it's looking for satisfaction with Him. And that is a faith that transforms. It's a faith that changes us from the inside out. The other thing I love about this verse, it's the only verse that says this. God is not ashamed of them. I... Do you spend any time looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Do you, you ever looked at their life? Because they ain't perfect. What about Noah? Nope. You know what we do as human beings? Most of the time when people go through the hall of faith, I'm guilty too. I look at all the stuff where God says, man, these guys, they're my faithful warriors. And then I talk about all the dumb stuff they did. Like, what, what's the one thing we know David for most? Yeah, it's never the man after God's own heart first. What's first on our mind? David, Bathsheba. How about Samson? When we think about Samson, oh, yeah, that was quick, right? Doesn't take us very long to think about his failure. When we talk about Abraham, well, he lied about his wife, said it was his sister twice. And we go through all their failures, but God, he doesn't say, I was ashamed of them. Why isn't God ashamed of them? He says, therefore, that therefore, why is the therefore there? Therefore, God was not ashamed. God is not ashamed. Why? Because their desire was for Him. Were they perfect? No. Perfection was never the call. What is the call? The desire. A desire for Him. Why Why did God, was God unashamed of Abraham? His desire was for Him. Why was God unashamed of Jacob, the big liar? Because His desire was for Him. And for God, desire matters. Oh, wait, for you it does too, don't it? Well, let's just put a, a proposition out there. Husband and wife, 
They're going to go away and have a special time for their anniversary. And as they're going away for their anniversary, the husband looks over at his wife and says, You know, I'm really excited about doing this and going and, and having this time for you because I know it's really important to you. And she goes, Oh, yeah, I don't really want to do it. But I know that it's something that, that's good for you. How's that anniversary weekend going to go? Now, why is it we can see that so clearly and not see that God wants your desire? Why is it so easy to see that? We, I mean, we, we expect it in human relationships, don't you? Man, when we, when we coach kids in, in sports, we want kids who want to play. Don't send me a kid, you're making play. Oh, I, I, got, I drug my son here by the ear. I'm going to make him play football. You're torturing me. Why? Do you hate me? <laughs> you know how hard it is to coach a kid who don't want to be here? Man, let him play music or what? let him do what he wants. Let him follow his desire. We see it in all kinds of acts in our life. But we, we tend not to recognize it. But God says, I'm not ashamed of them because they want me. You want God? Is He your desire? Is He that treasure? Because that's what He wants to be in your life. He wants to be that treasure. So what is this faith? It sees Him from afar off and it says, Man, I want that. I want the promises of God more than anything else in my life. <coughs> I want to see those things. It's glad. Can't wait for that, that approach. And a heart that has this desire for God and, and has this faith birthed from the inside, not external, birthed from the inside, can't come from the outside first, has to come from inside, my desire for God. You know what that does? Builds an ark in the desert. It gets up and leaves your home. And your family, maybe not sure where it's going. When it's 90 years old, it builds a nursery. It stands with a knife over its greatest desire. Or earthly desire. That's what that kind of faith produces. And when that internal part is happening, then the external comes. Look at the behavior of faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The test involved his only begotten son. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Only begotten. A lot of people trip over it. The Greek word is monogenes. His monogenes means his one and only unique. His one and only... Well, his only... Well, the only one that the promise was coming through in Abraham's life, 
The only one that the promise had landed on. So he's thinking the promise of God is at stake. Here, God is saying, go take your son, the son whom you love. Go to a place that I will show you and offer him there as a burnt offering. If I, if I kill God's promise, how can God's promise happen? How can these things that, that God has laid out for him, so the promise of God was at stake? This is what happens when obedience to God feels like the end of your dream. You ever been there? If I do what God wants, I'm going to lose. If I obey God in this, I'm going to lose. You can fill in the blank. So we oftentimes spend our lives making little compromises. But Abraham shows us the way. It springs out of that heart's desire, the inner heart's desire, which was for God. His heart's desire to please God, to honor God, to live for God. That was inside. So how does it come out? Even when obedience looks like the end of the dream. If I obey God, I lose my son. If, if I make a stand for this, I'm going to lose a relationship. You ever said that? If I tell them that what I think in their life is a sinful act, if I, if I make a stand on that, then I'm going to have no relationship with them. I'm going to lose it all. When obedience to God looks like the loss of a dream... Abraham, he was able to move forward. Whether it's leaving, staying, confronting, you're sure if I do what God's asking me to do, it's not going to end well. It won't end well. But his trust, Abraham's trust, was in the reality that God is able. Now, didn't end the way he thought. But he believed God was able. He had a conviction for what he didn't see. I, I don't know how this is going to end, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be bad. But I have a conviction that God is able. That if I'm obedient... God will get what He wants. God will get what He wants from me, through me, in this situation. He had an assurance of things hoped for, the promise of God. He said that I'd have a son and he's going to have kids. I have that promise. An assurance of things hoped for. And he had a conviction in things not seen that God is able. And then what he thought God was able in is the impossible. Do a little study in scripture and tell me. Who'd God ever raise from the dead at the time of Abraham? There's lots of opportunity. I mean, Cain killed his own brother. Let's raise Abel. Well, he hadn't done that. You're at Genesis 12 with Abraham. You got the flood. No, nobody rose from the dead there. You got Noah and his sons. Uh, nobody was raised from the dead there. What on earth gave Abraham the idea that God would raise his son from the dead? He had no proof. 
None whatsoever. But he had a conviction. God is able. God is able and I trust him. His desire, his focus, and so he was able to do what none of us could do. He was able to attain a faithfulness we still sit up on the top of a mountain. The top of the mountain where God took Abraham was a mountain called Moriah. You guys familiar with it? Mount Moriah. Little ways down on Mount Moriah, there was a city that gets built called Jerusalem. You've heard of that before, right? And then, in order to to develop the city, they developed a stone quarry and they began cutting chunks of stone. And as they cut chunks of stone out of the mountain, then then that quarry began to become the place where they would take people to stone them. When someone had an offense and capital punishment was taken, they'd go to the stone quarry and stone them. And so they started calling that stone quarry by a particular name. Do you remember it? Golgotha. The place of the skull. So Abraham becomes a picture of a father offering up his only begotten son. And God said to Abraham in that place, when he provided the sacrifice, he stops him, he provides a sacrifice, a ram caught in a thicket, and he says, Abraham, Yahweh Yide, God will provide himself. To Abraham, you don't have to do that. God said, he'll do it himself. Same mountain, same place. Incredible picture. What's it all birthed from? A heart's desire for God. And that kind of faith transforms a life. Makes a normal guy like Abraham full of faults. A normal guy like Abraham, just like you and I, do extraordinary things for a heart's desire for the Lord. Verse 20 gives us another example. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. (coughs) Isaac invoked future blessings. What's that mean? It means Isaac believed that the promise that God had given him for a city that he never experienced in his life and he was going to die in faith looking for was also going to get passed to his children. So he blessed them. He gave this blessing. He gave his blessing. Now, his heart's desire was to give that blessing to which one? Esau. But God said, I know that's what you want to do, but you're going to give it to Jacob. And he's pretty sure, I don't think I'm going to do that, God. I I don't think I'm going to do that. God said, you are. You don't know you are, but it's okay. You're going to do it. What did the Bible say about him? By faith, he blessed his kids. By faith. Even though that's all going on in the background, why? how is it still by faith? Because he believed that promise is for my kids. That promise is for them too. So he passed it on. Fathers, you pass on 
That promise that you cling to, that desire that you have for the Lord, you pass that on to your kids. That's our job, right? To pass on that blessing. Just in case we miss it, this is not the only example he's going to give us of it, right? By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So he actually laid the blessing on all his kids, but when he did that blessing... um, he did a he did a special blessing for Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two kids. He adopted them into the twelve tribes of Israel, which made fourteen, depending on how you count. And he laid his hands on them. And what was he saying? He's saying the promise that I hold on to, the promise that I am assured of, I'm passing that on to my kids. I'm giving it to them. God's promise for me, guys, for you too. God's promise for me is for you to go and and experience these things. And you know, right now that's happening. You you might not even see it, but there's a bunch of kids on the other side of that hallway right now. And what are they being told? The blessings that God's given to your parents is for you too. It's for you. By faith, He blessed His sons And then the last one, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. So Joseph's dying. They're in Egypt. The children of Israel get there. There's only 70 of them. 72, give or take. 70 is a round number when I say it. That fair? So 70 of them, they're gathered there. But when they leave, some estimates have them at... One, two million. That's a lot. That's a big growth. 400 years, but it's a big growth. And so Joseph's sitting there, and the Israelites are are there. His brothers are all there. Their kids are all running around. There's just a few of them. And he knows in 400 years, God gave a promise that we're going back to the land. So in 400 years, he told the guys. Now, what's he got to count on? That the dude he tells, tells somebody else, right? Otherwise, what happens to Joseph's bones? Well, they stay wherever they're at. So the way they buried in those, they just so you know, they, they have a cave, they put a body in there, the body decomposes. When the body decomposes, the bones are left. They go in and gather the bones, put it in an ossuary, bone box. They figure they take the parts that God needs, a couple thigh bones. That's good. He, God can make you out of that. He made the first man and woman out of less, didn't he? Yeah, I'm not sure he needs that much. But anyways, they put their bones in a bone box and they haul that bone box. And so that bone box would go into a family crypt. And Joseph said, in 400 years, you guys don't see it yet, but in 400 years, we're going to leave. Is that assurance in the things hoped for? Is that believing in the promises of God? 400 years we're going to leave. Make sure you take my bones home. So where's his bones today? In the cave of Machpelah. He gave by faith. He had assurance. Assurance that when God said it, it's a sure thing. He had conviction that he was going to, he don't know how it's going to happen. He couldn't see it from where he was. But he had conviction that it was going to happen. He gave instruction And they took his bones back home. That's the outward expression, guys, of the inward desire that the first several verses was talking about. 
That when my desire, when my desire is for the Lord in this way, when my desire is for Him, this is how God works that out. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, is that the way my faith looks? Because sometimes in a church we talk about faith as a one-time flash-in-the-pan moment. You know, I had faith once when I was a kid, and I, and I said a prayer in Sunday school, and that's it. But the, guys, the Bible doesn't describe faith that way. The Bible describes faith as a life. The Bible describes faith as a desire for Him. A love for God, desire for God. And then what is God's response to those guys? I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not ashamed. I want to be in the line that says, I'm in a line that God's not ashamed of. Right? Because I don't know what the line where God is ashamed of, but I can't be good, right? That can't be a good category to find ourselves in. So rather than making excuses for why that's all okay, maybe what we should do is really take a look at our own lives and say, is this faith of Hebrews 11 my faith? Do I have the assurance of things hoped for? Do I have a conviction in the things that God has said? So much so on the inside that it starts to change my outside, my actions. Because you can't do it the other way. It won't happen. Most of the time we talk about things like, i got to clean this up, or i got to clean that up. That's not ever going to happen. Look, if you're going to do it, it's been done. I've been married 31 years. My wife's still waiting for things in my life to change. Oh, next year, honey. By next year... I promise I'll never say anything rude again. (laughs) I'm broke. I'm going to mess up next year too. How do I change that? How does our life change when when we let the heart's desire? Here's what Paul wrote in Romans. He said not to let sin reign on your heart. Not to let sin sit on the throne of your heart. Rather... Let Jesus Christ sit on the throne of your heart. What's that mean? That my desire is not for sin, my desire is for Him. It still comes back to that desire, right? That my desire is for Him. How do I stop sinning? I don't stop sinning by, by self-will. <clears throat> I stop sinning when I say, sin's not sitting on my heart no more. Jesus is on my heart. When Jesus is on my heart, I don't want to sin. I just, it's just not that so good. I didn't have to do a bunch of other stuff. I just had to get him on the throne. I had to change my desires. Well, Jackie, how do you change your heart? I've had guys sit in my office weeping, saying, I don't want Jesus that much. What I want is meth. I don't want Jesus that much. I I just want another drink. Another whatever. You put the slot in. Weeping. What do I do? Oh, brother, you call on the name of God and you ask him to change your heart. He's the only one can do it. I can't change your heart. I'm not wholly convinced we can. But I know that God said, if you have a heart of stone, I can give you a heart of flesh. 
I've seen God make blind eyes see. I know God can make a hard heart open. Scriptures give us little hints. Like she was granted repentance. And Lydia out at the river, when Paul was preaching, comes to know the Lord. Because the Lord did what? He granted repentance. What did he do? He softened her heart. She could hear. He softened her heart. He softened her heart. So what do we do? We fall down on our knees before a holy God and we say, God, change my heart. Change my heart. But don't make excuses until the end of your life. We want to be able to say, these all died in faith. They started the race and they finished the race. And the whole time their life was marked with this attitude. They had faith. They desired God. He was what they wanted in their life. And that transformed them into this, these guys we're reading about in Hebrews chapter 11. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.